What is up, hoopers, analytics, bad guys, bucket getters, boosters, blue bloods, and new bloods? On today's episode, we are speaking with analytics mastermind and statistician, Evan Miyakawa. He's going to share a little bit about his system, his player ratings and team ratings, as well as some dark horse teams that his system likes more so than other analytics. We're also going to be talking about that beautiful, beautiful festivity on Saturday, celebrating the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Krzyzewski. It's going to be fun. Hello, Hoop World. My name is Tuck Clary. I write for Slipper Soul Fits and Bussing Brackets. And joining me today, he'll never blow by you no matter how badly you ruin his ceremonious. Uh, uh, what is it? Is Did we watch a wake last night? I don't know. <laughs> but it's Austin King. What up, boys? Also joining me today, he's a big, big fan of dunking with 0.7 seconds left in a game it's kyle sessions dunking on those cameron crazies baby he is in arizona but his heart's already in vegas because my boy loves seeing teams getting cooked and we saw some cooking last night it's josh linky hey guys i'm glad we're none of us here are journalists mm. <laughs> how's that cougar tail taste josh uh honestly a little overdone yeah there was there was there was a little bit of deep fried a little bit of cooking people were grilled people were shook who's who's cooked the most after today where do you want to start do we want to start with uh, a little bit of a uh, cameron crazy uh catatonic ca- cameron crazies at that point <laughs> I'm the air sure was Coach out K of that arena let's was talk about quiet. the devil incarnate himself yeah, the quietest yeah, Duke fans have ever been in their life, and I Ooh. savored that moment of silence. I like, heard they paid like five thousand dollars each to to be that quiet. Is that true? Uh, the university, uh, the athletic department decided to tweet out the asking price for some of the tickets at that game, which is what exactly what you want your nonprofit university to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, ah. people were paying one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars to sit. And watch Coach K just want to go home. I, I the top price was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The get in price was three thousand six hundred and ninety. And the average ticket, like you said, Josh, five thousand three hundred and seven dollars. Imagine paying two hundred and fifty K to watch Coach K lose to there's, a bad North Carolina team. I think there's oh, a lot delicious. of fans that might have done that just hoping he would lose like <laughs> i might have done that if i knew going in that there was a chance that north carolina was going to win that game i might have i might have emptied the bank account for it but the problem is we didn't go into that game thinking there was a chance for north carolina mm-hmm. to lose because no media program was talking about the actual game Not it was all, no. it was all about the weird funeral ceremony sacrifice like have y'all have you all seen the A24 classic Midsommar? Of course, an incredible movie. Oh, uh, okay. So Coach K having so many video tributes, so much pomp and circumstance. I thought my guy reached the limit of age inside of the Cameron Center and we were going to have a ceremony with him <laughs> dumping off the top. Like, what? 
what was going on? Like, we, so I think we all remember when Michael Jordan got his uh, number retired and he hyped up the uh, North Carolina crowd. Oh, wait, no. I think we all remember when Michael Jordan went back to UNT Chapel Hill after going to the Hall of Fame. Michael Jordan gave a speech where he said, the ceiling is the roof. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how much of the pop and circumstance for the last week you saw, but at one point, Coach K gave us the the beautiful speech that the Cameron Indoor Center, it's not a house because a house, anyone can own a house, but it is a home because a home is more valuable and personal than a house. And that home just got home wrecked. <laughs> Yesterday, <laughs> so to get back to the Midsummer, uh, Hubert Davis, big analogy, home wrecker. Is is Hubert Davis the bear that like <laughs> burns down the whole house? Hubert Hubert Davis is just like solemnly staring into the camera with flowers all over him. Like <laughs> He's the May Queen. Look what he look what he won and for what? <laughs> that look he gave John Shire as he blew by him um, in retrospect was beautiful. And it was also haunting because all year long, everyone left Hubert Davis for dead with this North Carolina team. All the talk was, oh, they didn't have any quad one wins until recently. And, you know, he's he's just not performing up to the level that we were, you know, require here in UNC. And then this on the greatest day of Duke's history, he completely banishes Coach K to a life of solitary confinement and ruins John Shire's, um, you know, baton grab at the end of, of uh, Coach K's career. Like, so uh, this the alumni services for Duke gave Coach K a, a novelty bench that's going to be out in front of the student center. Is that play- thing cursed now? Like, if you <laughs> sit there, do you just get, like, yelled at saying, that was unacceptable. Unacceptable. Can anyone be quiet, everybody? <laughs> quiet, quiet. I'm speaking. The greatest coach of all time. Yeah. Also, also, how the how the hell did we get to the point where people are legitimately being like Mike Shishetsky or John Wooden? Who's better? <laughs> Insane. How did Insane. that happen? <laughs> oh, you my win gosh. five in thirty years. Apparently, that's just as good as ten and twelve or whatever. <laughs> can't oh even begin to describe it and and this is the thing so coach k obviously a good coach but at the same time what has he really been a lead at has he given us like a style of basketball that shaped the game he hasn't has he given us a beautiful offense or a beautiful defense that everyone builds their program off of he hasn't what has he done he stole the style of um bobby knight then he rebranded and he was like, I'm going to be Dean Smith. And then he rebranded and he was going to be like, I'm going to be Coach Cal. He is only someone that is good at branding. That is all that he is good at. He is not a good basketball coach in the way that Wooden was or even Roy Williams was. Certainly not at the level of Patino. He is a good to solid basketball coach that has no meaningful identity that is rooted in himself. He just bites other people's basketball culture. And then ESPN (laughs) is the one that just pumps him 
just pumps Duke's program like every day. He steals identities and that is what he does. And he adds a little devil flair and everyone loves to hate him. And that's the brand. And that is what is allowed for him to make Duke what it is. But once he's gone, Shire is not going to be nearly as hated. Duke and their elitism is going to be gone and they are going to flounder and they will be new bloods again, boys. Let me let me let me give a counterpoint. <laughs> I don't want them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let, give me a counterpoint. Austin yeah. King just Austin King just gave a manifesto. Like let me, let me give what? let me give a counterpoint for so long. The book let me is give a counterpoint on on this this particular subject. I think Duke does have a brand, and Coach K is responsible That's for what, that brand, and that brand. Well, and that that brand that he is responsible for is giving us garbage players like Christian Leitner and Grayson Allen, who trip guys, who play dirty, who give us the most ridiculous uh, sound bites like J.J. Redick or you name it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Duke is hated not just because of Coach K, but because of the players that he brings us and who he protects in post-game uh, press conferences where he chews out student reporters. I mean, let's not forget, Grayson Allen was the only current NBA player there on uh, his his final game. Not mm-hmm. just that, but also shout out J.J. Redick for wearing his podcast hat to a ceremony. Play, baby. <laughs> like, like any time to, to shove the branding. Congratulations on that. That, that right there is the Duke That's way. That's what he teaches his players. That's it. It's just brand play. He's not he's not teaching them how to play basketball. He's teaching them how to build a brand. That's all he cares about. The he only himself. the only top NBA 75 player that was at the game last night, Dirk Nowitzki. Like, <laughs> like there's that's I mean, even when they were like talking about his when they were doing this, the wake ceremony at the end after the game, which also hilarious that it there was is. broadcasted on ESPN. Just Mike Krzyzewski, like looking like he needed a dog to yell at, like sitting. <laughs> he yelled at the crowd multiple times. We, like, we haven't. Be quiet. We haven't even talked yet about the fact that ESPN screwed themselves with their prototypical mm-hmm. game window garbage where you had an overtime game bleed into the most advertised game on their network all season easily. And here they were, like, I'm sure they were in the, the production truck scrambling, trying to figure out how can we get this other game over so that we can move on to this huge game for us. What a mess. Thank you, Bill Self. God bless you. Horns down, Bill Self. That's right. Horns, Horns down. down. <laughs> like, That's a mood. Like, I mean, speaking to the branding, I felt like I was watching a televangelist for like three hours yesterday. Yes. Like, low-key, the fact that there's the, the K with the one logo on literally every single shot, it, it seemed... It, and like him, him reading his own monologues, like it felt like I was watching a funeral ceremony for a very elaborate billionaire who was doing like some some Tom Sawyer kind of like everyone thinks I'm dead, but I'm actually hanging out in the attic. <laughs> I want to see who really loves me. Like the vibes were just bizarre. Like 
there was that moment where he's talking about how much he loves his family and his family sobbing and he needed to reassure everyone no i love my family more than i love they basketball cut to his wife the best thing about this broadcast was the amount of times that north carolina's brady manic who would duke would never touch with a 10-foot pole <laughs> as a player I wouldn't either five. look at him. <laughs> I mean, come on, but the guy is majestic. Like he <laughs> majestic. He, he does look like a wizard, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. absolutely went like unconscious from three, drilled five or, or four of them in the second half, and every time he made a, a shot, they just pan the camera over to Mike's wife, and she's just sitting there with her mask on, like shaking her head. It was beautiful. I think they sabotaged him just the way that they like uh, let that game play out in the second half. Like, and the announcers were trying so hard to make it like not be as devastating as it was. They were like playing complete cover the whole second half. It was, and even after they lost, the announcers acted like nothing happened. Like yeah. Duke didn't lose, and they were like, "We'll just not discuss that. Let's just talk about how great <laughs> Coach K is." Yeah, like... when they went on like a nine-zero run to start the second half i was like i want these announcers to be like freaking out this is huge you're on the most hostile floor you could possibly be on in the last like 30 years of basketball and they're just hitting shots it was crazy and 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 they're just like yep well there goes another manic three it's like come think, on guys i think the one um you know takeaway i have from this simply is that it feels bad to root for north carolina it feels worse <laughs> to root for duke so, but you know, I mean, North Carolina out here led by Ginger Jesus, you know, like <laughs> this, this is, this team could have turn, good tournament vibes at this point, right? Ginger Jesus, if Ginger Jesus also worked on hot rods, like <laughs> <laughs> he leads that, a motorcycle gang on campus. <laughs> that guy's got the grease stains under his fingernails for sure. MC Tar Heels. <laughs> we have this legacy of Coach K. And his legacy is absolutely going to have the footnote of could not figure out how to limit Caleb Love. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but the fact that this is the Tar Heels team that does this, this team that like didn't didn't like get the tournament conversation legitimately until probably two weeks prior to this game, the team that throughout this entire run to get the ACC above three teams into the tournament, uh, that this team with, yeah, Caleb Love being Caleb Love, shooting his team out of the lead in the first half. This team where, I don't know, is there anyone outside of a fire hot manic against Duke, like other than Baycott that you were like, okay, this, this UNC player is special. I think it's interesting that Duke decided to send uh, North Carolina, by far North Carolina's best free throw shooter to the line and get 12 free throw shots, which he converted 12 for 12 on. Um, yeah. I mean, he was two for 10 from the floor. Otherwise, like he's, it's not like he's, you know, burning the net down otherwise, but somehow you decide to continually put him at the line. The best thing about this game, in my opinion, was where Armando Baycott immediately FaceTimed, Roy and yes. was like, I did it. I killed the devil for you. Let's go. He's gone. You're gone. It's over. But like that, that was just like a revenge game for Baycott. I mean, 11 for 10 for 11, four, uh, three of four from the uh, free throw. Like he just, when he got the ball, he wasn't going to miss. And uh, 
he looked like he had that just dedication. And I've been I've been kind of standing Armando Baycott on the podcast for a little while. I, I really like his game. So Buff it biceps. was nice to see. I got to ask, where do we see North Carolina going in the NCAA tournament at this point? Because they're obviously <laughs> in now. So Yeah, they're in is, now. Is this is this a second weekend Let's team? Put them as a two seed after this. Banish <laughs> <laughs> Duke to the 16. <laughs> yeah, they climbed. Oh. They're up to 32 now in Ken Palm. I mean. Yeah, what? Well, they should be like a six, seven. So he checks Lucas Harkins has North Carolina as a 10 seed right now in mm. the West bracket, Gonzaga's bracket. They would play LSU, the seven seed, and then play the winner of Villanova, Montana State. Yeah, I feel like the 10 seed's a little low, though, because it probably doesn't factor mm-hmm. in Duke yet. Um, they're 10 on bracket matrix also. But um, I would say that they, with this win, they probably jump into the, the upper nine, low eights range. And. That's an interesting second round game for a one seed, if that's the case. Like potentially mm-hmm. having to play the Tar Heels, who seem to be peaking at the right time, um, could they potentially knock off a one seed? Yeah, I, I I think this was just an isolated incident. I don't I don't know that they're going to win any. Like I think it was really just the motivation to go in and beat Coach K on his own floor on the retirement game. Um, you know just looking at the way that that game went down and the fact that they're every single one of their starters played like the entire game, like 38 mm-hmm. minutes. Like if you do that in the tournament, I think you get, tor- I think you get torched. Like, I don't, I, I don't see do how you can bring your guys out. You I would love to see, games. I would love to see Kentucky win the sec tournament, get the one seed North Carolina, get the eight or nine in their region. And they get a rematch of that 2017 North Carolina, Kentucky tournament game that Kentucky fans still cry about to this day. Um, you know, and, and see, can we get a, can we get a repeat? Can uh, North Carolina knock off Kentucky at the one seed spot? Can't that. wait for Brady Manic to just give Oscar uh. Sheway buckets. Yeah, Brady Brady just draws him out out of the paint <laughs> so so Oscar can't even get his rebounds done. Um <laughs> like yeah, I even Joe even Joe Lenardi's dome has North Carolina as a 10 seed right now playing Colorado State, then Wisconsin in the West bracket again. So obviously North Carolina keeps on this torrid pace. They do business in the ACC. Their their socks going to rise, but just just out of out of the blue right now, would you take North Carolina over Colorado State? Uh, I don't know. Dave Roddy is like ridiculously amazing, and um, I feel like in the tournament he's gonna really shine at least for the first weekend or so, and and really you know show off his talents on a national stage. Um, so I don't know. I I also don't really think North Carolina is gonna end up. At the 10 seed. I, I do actually think no, they're gonna probably so. be like an eight seed because I yeah. could really see them go and, and get to like the semifinals of the ACC tournament at this point. Um, that conference is so weak this year. <laughs> there's just not a lot of great matchups that would be uh, hard for the, the Tar Heels to, to get through in that tournament. Um, I don't know. I, it's a good question, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see, I don't see that matchup probably even happening at this point. Yeah. Um, so after that game yesterday, a lot of folks are saying Armando Baycott has to be player of the year. Do you buy that for the ACC player of the year? I still have Alondis Williams, of course. <laughs> I think we should just give it to nobody. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, no one deserves it. Coach K should get abolish, it. We should abolish That's a good point. the ACC. Yeah, actually, I do maybe like that. One maybe final you gift. Just give, maybe yeah. you give Coach K all the awards in the conference this year. Um, he's defensive player of the year. He's, you know, freshman of the year. He's all the first team slots or Coach K. Newcomer just, of the year because he looks like he's never coached a game before. That was a horrible performance. <laughs> <laughs> wow, spicy. Can we, can we ask a? Can I ask a little little question here? Uh-huh. Do we really believe that this is Coach K's final season? Yes. Yeah, I do. One hundred. You don't think like Shire fucks it up for like two seasons and K's like no. You think I he's gonna? Have... You think he's gonna Pat Riley go down from the yeah. rafters? So you... <laughs> What no, if, what if it sounds like... goes to Miami? What if he takes Joe? Oh. I think what I think what would happen is Coach K would be forced to watch the guy he shunned, Tommy Amaker, take over mm. and then sit in his living room, a dying man, watching the Har- <laughs> the, the his former player and current Harvard head coach uh, take over his beloved program. He's got like a Citizen Kane moment where he drops a basketball snow globe and just goes. <laughs> I like I don't know I the way that he was talking also bizarre I I will always choose the Roy Williams kissing the court as a send off far more than a, a pomp and circumstance I get that you're trying to help John Shire secure the gig secure the reins all of that but I mean the way he was talking he was acting like he wouldn't even come back like he wants to be completely withdrawn from the program which is also incredibly bizarre yeah you can't away. take get going away from the spotlight it can't you know, take it all right joining us today is a very special guest he is a statistician maestro the wizard of formulas it is evan miyakawa you can read his work on evanbia.com find him on twitter at evan mia evan how's it going it's going great guys i'm glad to be here i wanted to know uh just a little bit about your like basketball fandom background um growing up uh what was your favorite college basketball program and um has that kind of changed and evolved as, as you've watched basketball through a different lens i grew up in indiana so i think uh growing up with basketball being kind of the the most important sport is pretty normal for people who grew up there in the hoosier state uh my dad went to purdue uh, but i actually grew up a butler bulldogs fan we lived about 15 minutes from where they play at hinkle Fieldhouse, and i went to the national championship game butler versus duke the the infamous gordon hayward shot so I think with those things combined, I've always been a diehard Butler fan, and I think that will probably be, always be my number one team. Um, more recently, I've also become a Baylor fan because I've been in school there getting my PhD, but it really started out being a Butler fan and just enthralled with college basketball in general. So you you were getting your PhD, like you mentioned, at, at Baylor. Uh, what What kind of drew you to their doctoral program? That's a great question. Um, I graduated with my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's degree in math uh, at Taylor University, which is uh, north of Indianapolis, about an hour uh, in the middle of the cornfields. So pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And I was interested in going and getting a master's degree or a PhD in statistics, just because I knew I loved it. And I loved being able to apply technical knowledge to real world applications. And Baylor was kind of random uh, because I applied to 
three or four schools that I loosely had connections with, whether that was someone I knew who went to school there or knowing it had a good reputation, this and that. And Baylor was just one of the schools I applied to. I had met one person once who had graduated from their program. And so I wasn't really thinking much of it. But then when I visited and met people there, it just seemed like the perfect fit. And it really has been just an incredible experience. When you were when you were at Baylor, did you have a chance at all to discuss analytics with like Scott Drew or any of the, the assistant coaches? So I have never been able to like directly talk with Coach Drew, but one of my good friends in Baylor's statistics PhD program was the head manager for analytics, uh, and he had been involved with their basketball team for years. So I indirectly had sort of a relationship with the Baylor basketball team because I was frequently talking to my friend Jason, who was always coming back from practice and games with all this new analytics stuff they're working on. Um, and then kind of since then, I've sort of like had conversations with different assistant coaches and whatnot, but I've never had like a direct relationship in the way that some people might assume. Um, but, but yeah, lots of connections there. You're, you're pretty new on the uh, basketball, basketball analytics scene in college hoops. Um, there's, you know, obviously some more established, um, you know, things out there like Ken Palm, Sager and BPI. Um, what, what were you doing before creating college basketball predictive metrics? Yeah, that's a great question. I really think my the creation of what I'm doing now at my website and on my you know Twitter presence and whatnot really just came from my love for applying statistics, which is what I'm studying and what I'm good at, to sports, which is what I love most. I spend a lot of time thinking about it, watching it, and specifically college basketball. I've always been thinking of ways to watch basketball and then apply stuff that I'm learning, different statistical concepts, and try to like quantify different stuff and answer questions. And so my my college basketball website really just started as kind of a, a free time playground in a sense for me, just applying different things I was learning in graduate school, new techniques, and thinking, okay, can I apply this to college basketball? So it really started as, okay, um, I love ranking teams. That's fun. Uh, anytime someone puts out a ranking, I'm, I'm drawn to it. So how can I come up with my own set of rankings for college basketball teams? Here's some different algorithms I've found. Let me try applying it. And that's really how it started. And then once I did that for teams and I thought, okay, well, I don't see this for players. Can I, can I come up with a, a way to rate players? And it really just kind of went from there. So it was really just one concept to the next. And it kind of became what it is now, which is a, uh, a website that has player ratings, team ratings, bracketology, game predictions, lineup analysis, like so many different things. It's just been really fun. Ultimately, it's just come from a place of me applying different stuff that I'm thinking about and trying to quantify stuff in the college game. So largely, I would uh, I don't want to put too many college basketball fans in, into a corner, but uh, mathematic literacy is not necessarily a uh, sports fan's strength in a lot of aspects. How would you uh, suggest college basketball fans interpret your metrics or take in your metrics? Yeah, so I think the most interesting thing about what I do at my website is I have a player impact metric called Bayesian performance rating, which is really the the bread and butter of what I do that gets scaled up to the team level as well. But ultimately what it's trying to do is for every single player in the game on the offensive and defensive side of the ball, uh, you can always look at a player's stats, the points per game, you know, a team's win losses. And those are the main things people look at. But when it comes down to it in a game, you win a game by scoring more points than your opponent, right? Everyone knows that. And good teams score more points 
points their opponent by what we call having better efficiency at a possession level. That just means on any one given possession, you're more likely to score more points on that possession than a, a team is on the other side of the ball, right? So when you're trying to quantify player impact, ultimately it comes down to which players are uh, impacting their team's success the most when on their court, which players are leading to the best chance of their team scoring points or not allowing points uh, on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. And so what my uh, metric Bayesian performance rating attempts to do is try and quantify that player impact by looking at every single possession that a player plays, how well the team plays when they're on the court offensively and defensively, but then it also takes into account individual statistics, their individual efficiency metrics, because those do help us try and sort out who's better than other players. If you have, you know, two players in a game with the same plus minus, but one of them scores 30 points and the other one scores two, I think the 30 point score is more likely to have had a better impact on the game, right? So that's helpful. And then I also take into account some historical information about each player stuff like their recruiting ranking and how they performed in previous seasons, because that is helpful in predicting future success, which is ultimately what I'm trying to accomplish with BPR is to be predictive and not just say how well has a player done up to this point, but how likely are they to do well in the future in terms of impacting their team's success. So that's kind of the big nutshell of what Bayesian performance rating is and trying to in one or two numbers kind of sum up a player's predicted impact for their team. And so that's ultimately the, the big picture of what I'm trying to accomplish with a lot of my stuff. So you mentioned like taking in history of the player and things like that. So when we're looking at like your top 25 players, um, like Chet Holmgren's the number two player, but he doesn't have a history in college basketball outside of this year. So does that make it more impressive how highly rated he is? Is that is that am I reading into that correctly um, based on what you were saying? Or yeah, so for a player like Chet Holmgren or any other freshman or even a sophomore who only has one year of previous experience or maybe they didn't play a lot, it is a lot harder to project how well they're going to do in a future season. Now I do take into account consensus recruiting ratings, and that's a lot of what you have to go off of with incoming freshmen. So guys like Chet Holmgren and Paolo Bencaro, who were some of the top recruits, they did start off with a higher projection than other freshmen, but they don't have the benefit of the doubt of having a, a college season in their bag already. So the highest that you'll usually see a freshman in the this preseason projections is somewhere between 15 and 20, even though a lot of people might agree that the best freshman is probably gonna be you know, more like a top 10 player, but there are a lot of duds, a lot of guys who were projected to be really good and then aren't, um, you know, a guy this season that was, uh, you know, a top five freshman when the season started and is now considered to be almost a detriment to his team is a guy like Imani Bates. You never know where those guys are going to come from. So my statistical algorithm has kind of looked at, you know, for freshmen, for example, like Chet Holmgren, for a guy who has a similar recruiting profile, how well have they done according to BPR in previous seasons? And that sort of helps build their projection for the upcoming year. So for a guy like Chet, he didn't start from like a D1 average level, but he definitely had more work to do to get to the top than say Drew Timmy, who was, I think my preseason top one or two player coming into the year. Yeah, so looking at your top 10, you have three Gonzaga players. Obviously Drew Timmy is one, Chet Holmgren's now two, and then maybe to the surprise of some people, Anton Watson is number eight. Um, obviously, you know, Timmy and Chet are extremely, uh, efficient and great players. 
Um, but Anton doesn't get nearly as many minutes. Um, and, you know, he's had a bit of an up and down season over this last month. Uh, I'm curious, like, what you what do you see in BPR that uh, shows Anton's impact and makes him a you know top 10 player in the country, according to your metrics? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a player like Anton Watson is a perfect example of where BPR can really shine some light on some players who might not be recognized for the impact that they're having. So as you said, Timmy and Holmgren, Gonzaga's two best players, they're number one and number two in BPR, which again is measuring overall player impact. But Anton Watson is also a top 10 player. And part of the reason for that is because, again, BPR is trying to quantify or sum up a player's projected or predicted impact for his team on every given possession and it it weights offense and defense equally even though it's often a lot easier to um to get a good feel for a player's offensive impact because you know the there's more stats that keep that into account and whatnot but part of the the um important ingredient to bpr is not just looking at the individual stats but how well the team performs on each side of the court with that player on the floor so anton watson evaluates as one of the nation's best and most impactful defenders he's i think top five or top 10 based on what i just looked at here and part of the reason is because when you look at gonzaga's defensive performance uh, for all of their players on the court one of the important metrics that i look at is adjusted team defensive efficiency which is basically just saying when a given player is on the court how many points per 100 possessions is that team giving up on defense and you'll expect their better more impactful defenders to have lower numbers because that means opposing offenses are not scoring as much and when you order gonzaga's players anton watson is the best on the team at 81.3 points per 100 possessions given up and that adjusts for the strength and quality of oppositions faced down to the individual players uh, on every single possession uh, whereas a guy like uh, andrew nemhard for example is up at 84 so uh, Anton Watson, just according to that, is the team's most impactful defender. And then his uh, defensive stats as well seem to indicate that as well. And he also did really well in defense last year as well. So his preseason projection for defense was also pretty high. Mm -hmm. So when you put all of that together, that's part of why he is such an impactful defender in BPR, uh, even though he doesn't play as much because the impact is really obvious in all of those different areas. Gotcha. Is there another player that your you know metrics love in particular that maybe the consensus is lower on or they'd be like wait how is that guy that high because that doesn't match with like my perception the way national media talks about it or like the standard eye test or just like those raw stats that most people are used to where it's points per game it's rebounding it's assists and that's really all people look at yeah, so I've got one example of a player who rates more highly in BPR and one who rates more low, and I think these are good, both good examples. I think I'll start with Arizona because Arizona's uh, go-to guy, their projected NBA uh, pick is Ben Matherin, and he's been incredible. And they've also got a guy like Kirk Kreisa, uh who can just light it up in any given day. But Arizona also has two players in the top 10 nationally in BPR, and those two guys are Azulis Tubelis and Dalen Terry for a lot of the same reasons that a guy like Anton Watson uh, rates really highly. Number one, they're both really efficient in their offensive play, and they also rack up a lot of defensive numbers, which indicates that they have good impact. But then when you actually look at Arizona's success on both ends of the floor, they're night and day better than the rest of Arizona's teammates in terms of Arizona's success. So just from an objective 
uh, possession level basis without knowing the names, without having, you know, seen which guy has more crafty moves when you're actually trying to assign Arizona's success to some players, Tubelis and Dalen Terry both stick out as being the most impactful guys for Arizona, which I love. On the opposite end, one guy who is a national player of the year candidate and has gotten a lot of love and very deservedly so, but has never rated well in BPR the entire season is Wisconsin's Johnny Davis. And now that is definitely a little bit contentious. And I certainly wouldn't necessarily vouch and say that Johnny Davis uh, should be outside the top 50 most impactful players in the country. That's just what my computer model came up with, but there's a big reason why he doesn't rate very well. And that's because his shooting efficiency is pretty bad compared to other Mm -hmm. 20 points per game scorers. So when you look at the top 25 scorers in the country, he rates, I think, 23rd out of 25 in some of these uh, efficiency shooting uh, metrics like effective field goal percentage. Obviously, he's really clutch and he takes a lot of their shots down the stretch and makes a lot of them. But maybe a lot of their close games have been closer because he's not shooting as well as even his other teammates uh, to get to that point. So again, BPR doesn't love him very much for that. And that's part of why he hasn't been uh, more towards the top of the list. Whereas a guy in a similar conference who averages similar numbers, but's way more efficient, like Keegan Murray, evaluates much better. Is there is there a particular team that similar to Anton Watson as a player, is there a team that your metrics likes that necessarily there isn't a consensus for out there? I think a really interesting team this whole season uh, in terms of how they've rated in the analytics versus just public consensus has been Texas. So Texas was in a lot of people's eyes, a preseason top five team. Part of that was because of all the pieces they brought in. And part of that was because of, of the new coach, Chris Beard. And I think a lot of that was deserved. They started out the season really poorly. I had them in the preseason, I think maybe top 25, but that's being generous. Uh, And that was obviously a lot lower than what people had them. And I had Texas Tech as a projected better team. And part of that is because I was able to objectively quantify their projected output from all of these transfers that they had, because I have this you know, great player impact metric that's able to quantify that and, you know, project for future seasons. And so just looking at the sum of their parts, it stuck out as a team that didn't quite have the star power that a lot of people thought. I think part of that's because Marcus Carr never evaluated well in BPR and people thought that when he got on a better team and he didn't have to take as many shots that he would do better. That hasn't really been the case. He's been fine, not great. But now the recipe has flipped. I think in recent weeks they've done better, but you know, into January, when people finally got off the Texas train, a lot of people were really uh, not counting them at all. And they've stayed pretty consistently in like my top 20. So I think they're an example of a team that everyone loves to overreact. Uh, they love to get really hyped about a team. And then if they dip south, they love to just drop the drop the talk altogether. And the reality is usually the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Um, so I think another team like Baylor is a great example Uh, Baylor was number one in the country for a while. My metrics never had them number one. They still had Gonzaga number one. I had Baylor fans, my own, my own people asking me, Hey, how can Baylor not be number one? They're clearly the best team. And then they lost several games and a lot of people dropped them out of their top 10 and my metrics kept them in the top five. And people thought that's really high. And now it's kind of evened out. So I think it's sort of an example at large of how, you know, having objective metrics like this really does help kind of calm some of this overreaction bias that we honestly love to have. It's fun to overreact. uh, And usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. 
Yeah, I'm going to start calling Johnny Davis a chucker because of this. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I love Johnny Davis, reacts. National Player of the Year, out of my face. Um, so, one of the things that you recently added to your website that I think is a really uh, effective and helpful thing is the kill shot metric and tracking. Um, basically, from what I understand, it's 10 0 runs that teams have, um, and that this is very predictive for a team that is going to win a game. It's very hard to come back from a 10-0 run. Um, I'm curious, uh, how helpful is this for tracking which teams are gonna win and which don't, and who is the best at getting these kill shots? Yeah, so this is something that I've started tracking this year, and it really came from, I think I was watching uh, Illinois play Purdue in January. And the only other full Illinois game I had watched was their game against Arizona, where I'd noticed that they had gone on like a 12-0 run and then they'd given up a 14-0 run. And then they did the exact same thing against Purdue. And so I thought, can we actually quantify how streaky teams like Illinois are? You know, are there teams that are more likely to go on runs and give up runs and what that might mean about their future success, right? So this metric that I call the kill shot uh, like you said, uh, looks at teams that go on 10-0 scoring runs or better in a game. So you score at least 10 points in a row without being scored on. And looking at teams that both are really good at going on these runs, teams that don't give up a lot, or maybe teams that I would call streaky that go on a lot and give up a lot, or on the flip side are more you know uh, stable or less streaky. Teams that don't have the ability to go on scoring spurts, but also don't give them up. So I've sort of kind of divided teams into different quadrants. When you look at teams that are really dominant, so teams that often go on a lot of these runs and don't give them up, Gonzaga is head and shoulders above everyone else, uh, which is not really a surprise. They've had 36 of these kill shots this year. That's 1.3 a game. So they're more likely than not in a game to go on a 10-0 run. Now, something to consider with this is that it doesn't adjust for strength of opponent, but it's so far ahead of everyone else that I think that will still translate uh, come the tournament and other teams that are high up that list in terms of both uh, going on lots of runs and not giving them up are teams like Arizona, Houston, and then you have teams like Kentucky, Purdue, even Murray State that are kind of in that really good tier. So I think a lot of those teams are ones that, you know, in a game, they're never out of it and you can always count on them to get back in a game. I think the more interesting cases are these teams that are really streaky. So teams that go on lots of runs, but also give them up, which means no game is decided at any point. If they have a lead, it's not safe. If they're behind, they can get back into it. And so I think these are teams, and Wisconsin is one of these teams. They And Tennessee is another one. Wisconsin and Tennessee both, uh, you know, they, they go on lots of runs, but they also give them up at a close to the same rate. So, you know, when it comes tournament time, uh, I think if you're a streaky team and you're playing a better team, that might mean that you have a better chance of pulling off an upset. Whereas if you're a favorite, your your lead might not be as safe as it might be for, for other teams in a similar place. Whereas you have more of these consistent teams like Loyola and Michigan State and Michigan who uh, just don't really have the ability to go on runs, but also don't give many of them up either. So whatever lead gets amassed one direction or the other is more likely to stick. I have a question in terms of how to read uh, these advanced metrics for teams that had like major injuries or, or players leave their program. Like how, how do you, how do you uh, advanced stats like bake in the fact that Houston lost, you know, two of their best players. So most metrics do not account for this at all. It's pretty difficult uh, to quantify 
a player who has played part of a season and then is done, or maybe a player who, you know, only played a couple games and then it's been out and then comes back. It's really difficult to do that. Uh, so I think the way that I actually do this at my site is more advanced than most because I have this player impact metric that is able to quantify and translate all the player pieces into team's projected success. So when a player is missing or a player is out for the season, I actually have an objective way to adjust their projected team success accordingly. So one of the things that I do is anytime a player gets out for the season, any uh, any ratings for them for the rest of the season adjust for that. So a team like Baylor, a team like Houston, uh, who lost big pieces, uh, those players are not accounted for anymore, and they their um, you know projection and their BPR uh, gets adjusted accordingly. But I also adjust for temporary injuries as well. So when you actually look at teams that have you know injuries that are not out for the season but are out for the foreseeable future, you can also adjust for those injuries on my team ratings page, and they're also according they also are incorporated in the game predictions as well. So that leads to some really interesting ones. Um, a team like Baylor, for example, is really interesting because they, for starters, at the beginning of the season, lost one of their star freshman Langston Love for the year, but that didn't really um, affect their projection too much. And then they just lost Jonathan Chama Chachua a couple weeks ago for the season, and that certainly um, uh, affected them somewhat as well. But then LJ Cryer being out is the one that really, really hurts their rating because now you start dipping into bench pieces that are way worse than the rest of the roster. So that's actually the one that really tips them and moves them like five to 10 spots lower in the ratings when LJ Cryer is out. And so if he comes back, that's a huge, huge piece for Baylor. So I think that's been really interesting to track some teams where you think a player missing is going to impact them more, but their rating doesn't change much. But then you add in another injured piece and their rating really drops. It more speaks to the fact that their depth is really getting hurt because of these injuries. Do you do you think that we overreact to injuries sometimes? Like, you know, I, I remember, I, I guess Houston's a good example of this because they have lost multiple players that were pretty important to the program. But um, I've seen, you know, teams in the past and you know who would lose a player or two during the year and then and then they would go on a run in march still is is this more to do with recency bias i do think we overreact to injuries and i honestly think part of that is because it makes for better storylines so when an announcer or a you know a, an article writer is writing something about a team that has had injuries it's so easy to talk about those pieces being missing, especially if they're losing a game. And so I think part of that is because it becomes a part of our conversation, it's an easy thing to talk about. It can be easy to then overreact to that injury just because of how much it gets conversed. And I think in reality, it every piece missing hurts, but teams are made up of more pieces than just one. Obviously losing your star player, like team like Houston, losing Marcus Sasser, who was uh, you know, look, playing like an All-American until he got hurt, that obviously, you know, impacts them a lot. But, uh, you know, I think it doesn't usually impact teams quite as much. And certainly we always point out the extreme cases where a player gets hurt and then a team, you know, their performance drops significantly. Whereas if it stays the same after an injury, you usually won't see that graphic thrown up on television. You know what I mean? So I do think just the nat the national storylines uh, do play a part in that as well. To kind of bounce off of that too, um, do, you, do you see maybe like, there are circumstances where a team will add a player back from injury or maybe from an extended break. And then uh, people talk about, well, this could affect chemistry. This could affect whether the team is able to, to play at as, as high of a, a level going forward. 
um, is do you think there's some sort of way we can analyze that you know that that metric so to speak yeah i do think the whole uh getting chemistry right thing when a player comes back from injury or starts the season after being hurt for a while is certainly an interesting component um i think a a team like duke for example is an interesting one where they had aj griffin who was um you know a big freshman who wasn't starting the year playing because of different issues and people just didn't really even think they needed him. And then now he's a huge piece for them. Um, so guys like that, I also think to a situation, uh, you know, where you have like a star player who starts out the year and then gets hurt and then has to come back. And how do you reintegrate them? I think if a team like last year, like James book night with UConn is an example. Um, so I do think those are interesting cases and I do not think there's any foolproof way to fully adjust for that. I also think, you know, the way that each coaching staff handles things does affect chemistry. And hopefully it's not like a player, you know, isn't around the team anymore or, you know, a player who's been rehabilitating for a while. He's probably been practicing with the team, stuff like that. So I do think it's really interesting. uh, And I do the best that I can, you know, with my stuff to incorporate all those things, but you know, you can't, you can't quantify everything. All right, Evan, I've, Got a question for you. So we've had a few arguments on the show, and I was wondering if you might be able to settle them for us. Be our judge, jury, and executioner of Josh Linky, the one who's always wrong about this stuff. Um, Our first and biggest (laughs) argument has been over God's team, the Providence Friars. The The predictive metrics have hated them, but I have always argued that you can't quantify God's will. Uh, can you quantify God's will? Can Bain, uh, Bayesian performance rate build in God's will to quantify how good a team is? And uh, will Providence go to the final four? Those are all my questions. <laughs> uh, that's great. I've never quite heard it uh, spoken that way. And I do think, you know, the hand of God might be really playing a part in this. You know, God is uh, fully in control and you can never... Amen. Do anything to change the sovereignty of the Lord. Uh, Amen. I, I will I mean, say. I, I knew I had a Calvinist on uh, on the call right now. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good a good educated guess there. <laughs> yeah, Providence is really interesting. Um, I actually just dug this up yesterday, and I'll probably be posting a graphic about this tomorrow. Uh, Providence has just been one of these really interesting teams to look at. You know, why are they so much lower in the predictive metrics than in their resume and then the AP poll? You know, obviously they've won a lot of close games. We've all heard that before. Uh, I actually found, I was looking at how much uh, teams have played better or worse in garbage time than in normal time uh, for like top 50 teams. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at teams that maybe uh, predictive metrics like Ken Palm, for example, who he always includes the whole game sample when evaluating teams, um, how that might swing one direction or the other for teams that when the game's already decided, uh, play better or worse. My metrics do not include garbage time. I filter those out just to reduce some of the noise a little bit. Providence has played worse in comparison to normal time in garbage time than any other of the top 50 teams. Mm. So when you look at outcome uh, possessions, when the game is already decided, whether that's they're winning or they're losing, uh, they play way worse in garbage time. So that might be part of why they evaluate poorly in some of these metrics. Now I still only have them in the thirties at my site instead of being a top 10 team. So that certainly doesn't answer all the questions because that's a, a small subset of the, of the minutes that they've played this year. But I do think that's interesting. Um, in general, I think the conversation around can you keep up close game luck is an interesting one. Uh, from a 
purely basketball fan perspective, you have to love what they're doing. I mean, you know, they, they have the magic ingredient. They know how to win games and they're more experienced at it than every other team that they're going to play. And that seems to count for something because it keeps working. On the flip side, I, I think the thing that's annoying to me is that uh, if I'm trying to argue my case that my predictive metrics are right in having them lower than what other people might have, all it takes is they lose one game in March and that's it. But they losing one game won't change people's opinions of how good they are. Usually you have to lose like three or four in a row for the narrative to completely change. But the reality is it just takes one game to go the other direction in a close game and, and that's it. So I do think it's really, really difficult to actually like fully evaluate teams unless they get to the final four or the national championship because there's just not a big enough sample size in the tournament to like truly identify and evaluate how good teams are. So I'm really interested to see what they do. So you heard it here first. Providence may have a 29.7 BPR, but they have an Exodus 8-2. If you refuse to let them survive in advance, he will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Amen. Amen. All right. Here is our second question. We've also had an argument on our last episode. Uh, I made the statement that uh, offensive rebounding is a bit overrated. Uh, we were discussing Oscar Shibwe. Um, who is the best offensive rebounder in the country. Uh, you know, he has 54 putback attempts on the season. He shoots 65% effective field goal rate, um, and he scored 70 points off of putbacks, which is slightly above two points per game. There's been a lot of arguments on the NBA level, particularly at Sloan Conference at MIT, about offensive rebounding and support importance. Most famously, Greg, Greg Popovich has essentially given up on offensive rebounding uh, and prefers getting back in transition defense. Um, do you think that this applies just to the NBA or is offensive, re uh, is offensive rebounding overemphasized and valued in the college game too? It's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. I, I certainly have not spent as much time digging into offensive rebounding specifically. I obviously do think it's really important. But if I were to talk about Oscar Shibwe specifically, uh, one of the things I can point to is that in my box BPR metric, which again is just looking at a player's individual stats, so their efficiency at different levels of the box score, and trying to then uh, predict what their actual impact is based on kind of correlating, uh, you know, success for the team for when a player's on the floor to their individual stats. Uh, Oscar Shibwe, based on how efficient he is from the floor and how many offensive rebounds he gets, you would think that he would be maybe the top or one of the top uh, players in the country in offensive box BPR. Uh, and he's up there, but he's only like 12th. And guys like Jaden Ivey for Purdue, uh, Andrew Nemhard for Gonzaga, Ben Mathern for Arizona, uh, even, you know, guy, bigger guys like Zach Eady, uh, Drew Timmy, Azulis Tubelis, they have a higher uh, estimated offensive impact based on their individual offensive stats. And which leads me to think that his offensive rebounding, while significant, maybe not is not quite as important uh, as people might think. Now, that's just an example of one player. Uh, but I do think that it is interesting to kind of take that all into account. Obviously, a guy like Oscar, the storyline has already been written about him, about how mm -hmm. great of a rebounder he is. So every time he gets one, it's pointed out. And obviously, he's better at it than anyone else in the country. I don't think that's arguable. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to actually, you know, have this objective 
um, statistical model that's trying to project impact uh, and predict impact just based on the individual stats. And you might expect he might be higher uh, than he is. Uh, so yeah, just an, that's my that's my one contribution to that conversation. What I'm hearing is I'm right, and offensive rebounding is not that important. You would two points, that. a little that's bit okay. over two points a game, Josh. But tell <clears> me, <throat> he's more important than JD Note. I just don't think that there's a a great argument for Shibway being the national player of the year just because of his rebounding. There's plenty of other players that I think are more impactful offensively and defensively. Most importantly, Chet Holmgren. Um, I still think I still think Oscar should be in that conversation. And uh, part of that is because uh, his and one of the things that's probably not focused on, but is a huge part of BPR is, OK, he gets all these great numbers. But does Kentucky actually play better with him on the court? Mm-hmm. And the answer is a resounding yes. In fact, I <laughs> it was kind of funny about a month ago, a little over a month ago, I, I did a list of the top uh, objective top glue guys in the country uh, based on looking at guys who, according to my metrics, were having a better impact for their team in terms of the play-by-play team success than their individual stats would indicate. And somehow Oscar Shibway was like a part of that list because even though his uh, his individual stats are so impressive, they didn't fully account for how much better Kentucky was playing with him on the court. So I do think that also is something to take into account for his case, not just his numbers, but the fact that Kentucky is way better when he's on the floor than when he's not. I do have a question off of that, like with depth and like how how big of a drop off is that player that's coming in, that's backing up Shibwe, where it does just make this chasm of difference when he's on the floor because the backup is just that much worse and not, you know, an above average replacement player how do you kind of adjust for that um in those kind of metrics yeah so that's a great question um so part of part of what bpr does is when it trying to um evaluate team successful that players on the court right you could take a simple measure like plus minus which just looks at you know how much did you outscore your opponent when that player's on the floor but we all know there's some flaws with plus minus namely that there's so many other factors it doesn't take into account like okay, well, were you actually playing against good players? Uh, You know, are you being attributed for another teammate's success? You know, were you playing garbage time? You know, what other teammates are on the court? All that stuff, right? So BPR, uh, in part of the part of the way that it works is it accounts for the individual strength of every other player on the court. So if you're always being put in to guard the other team's best player, it accounts for that. If you're always being put in with other teammates who are maybe uh, bottom dwellers and you're having to carry the team, it accounts for that. So I think that's part of why it helps it be more stable and why a guy like Oscar Shibway evaluates really well is because it's able to not only look at how well good did the team play, but then adjusting for how easy or difficult was the situation that he was put on the floor in. So looking at at Kentucky right now, I'm just looking at their top uh, eight rotation players. Um, and when you look at purely just look at the team's adjusted team efficiency margin, which is just how much better did they play against compared to the other team when each player is on the floor. Oscar leads the team at 33 points per per 100 possessions better. And when you get down to the bottom of the rotation at Jacob Toppin, it's 22. So for to translate that into something that we might relate to, Kentucky is playing about eight points better in a full game than uh, when he's in than when Jacob Toppin is in if they were to play a full 40 minutes. That's a huge, huge difference. So that's mm-hmm. part of why he he gets attributed with the impact that he does. 
I have a question about your player rankings just because I've noticed this last year and um, this year both. Um, I've always been a big fan of your site since I first found it. And um, I've, I use the lineup prediction predictor all the time. That's like my favorite part of it. Um, but I noticed the top 10 players are mostly bigs. Is that just a result of the fact that bigs are actually more impactful or is there something that you put into the mix here that prefers uh, just the bigger players? Um, Cause like that just seems like a, a narrative that wouldn't hold up when we talk about March Madness being a guards game. So I just wonder what, what's the difference there between what we're actually seeing and what we're seeing on your site. Yeah, I think what we are seeing this year is that the best players in the sport are primarily bigs, and that is coming across in BPR. Uh, when you look at previous years, like you know mid mid twenty tens, uh, a lot of those top players are guards, not bigs. Uh, so I think it really tries to evenly weight that. Ultimately, when you see one position group kind of rise to the top of the ratings, I don't think it's necessarily because of any inherent bias in the system. It's, it's from an objective point of view, it doesn't look at position, it's just looking at what players are being the most impactful for their team. So if there's more bigs towards the top of the list, that's just objectively who's being the most elite in terms of their impact and value on the floor. And so I do think a lot of we have a lot of bigs towards the top of that list this year, just because there are not as many elite guards. And I actually put up a graph last week that looked at um, how many point guards are in the top 100 of BPR annually, and it's usually between like 25 and 30. And this year, there's only 20. So that just gives an indication that at the highest level, the best players in the country, there's just not as many elite dominant guards as normal. And I think, you know, in future years, we'll see it go the other direction. Does that mean that a team that has like two or three really elite guards might uh, be far and away? Like, I mean, at the top, if you look at the rankings, like Baylor, Gonzaga, uh, Duke, they all have some of those top 20 guards or multiple of those guards. Um, does that, I mean, in your opinion, do, do those teams have have the best chance here just because they also have a decent big? Yeah, I think when you're looking at matchups, if you are one of those teams that has what's in more rare demand this year in an elite guard, uh, you're more likely to have a more of a mismatch at that position. Um, you know, I think a team like Purdue is, is a great case of how they their biggest hole this year, uh, according to most, is that they just don't have great point guards. Uh, they have two fine point guards, but they would probably uh, not be preferred starting options on other teams. And a lot of opposing point guards have had career days against them because of that difference in quality. Uh, so I do think that for a team like, you know, Gonzaga, a team like Tennessee with Kennedy Chandler, other ones, you know, Colin Gillespie for Villanova, for example, you're more likely to play a team that has, you know, subpar guards and that might really play in your favor this year i wanted to ask what your goals are for the future is evanmaya.com a passion project or do you have aspirations to com compete with the more established analytics uh scene yeah that's a great question i think that's something that's still um kind of always in the work ultimately i'm just really thankful to the lord for even this opportunity and that people like yourself who i really admire love to engage with it um my in terms of kind of my greater life, career, and whatnot. I have a great job that I'm really happy with working in sports analytics, ironically enough, but for professional teams. Uh, so I'm not like leaning on my website or my my analytics to become a full-time thing for me. But at the same time, there is a lot of interest from both fans and coaches for me to 
start putting some more advanced um, stuff that I've already been working on kind of into effect. So I think this like next year, I'll probably start to have some uh, if I'm if I have the time to, to put it into practice this offseason. And if not, then for next year. Um, I have some like more advanced coaching tools that I've been in conversations with different D1 head coaches who are using my my stuff and would love to see that they would be able to like pay for and stuff like that. I also might have some more like advanced fan options that people could subscribe to. So I'm always thinking about stuff like that. I would love to eventually move to monetizing a little bit just because, you know, I've put a lot of hard work into this. Um, but at the same time, I also just love being able to engage with people and be able to share what I'm passionate about and for other people uh, to just love it and use it and, and, you know, find joy doing it. So I kind of feel like I'm really happy with where things are at right now, but there's always potential to move forward in the future. So I'm always kind of reevaluating. Hey, that's, that's awesome. And, you know, I, I, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on and discuss uh, your system with us. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I am a big fan of your guys's work already. And I think for being uh, a, a new podcast, this is already one of the best ones that's out there. So I would recommend this to a lot of people. Evan, appreciate that, man. Evan, thank you so much. Also, thank you so much for your bracket simulation. I see that Gonzaga is going to win the national championship over Duke in a final four of Gonzaga, Baylor, Kentucky, Duke. You heard it here, folks. You can run this simulation on his website, evanmia.com. Find him on Twitter at evanmia. Great stuff as always. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, guys.